Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of After the Show, the BSM music podcast that's kind of about music, but usually is not about music. On today's show, I spoke to Dev from Delta Sleep about his life behind the camera as a freelance documentary director. Action. What do you shoot a lot of your work on? Well, it depends really. Like a lot of the stuff, if there's a budget for it, I generally like rent cameras. So like FS7 a lot. Sony uh-huh. FS7 is kind of like a big like cube camera or C300, Canon C300. They're like big like kind of documentary cameras where they have like all the sound inputs, everything's there. Okay. Um, and you have shoulder rig, based. Shoulder yeah, rig, yeah. yeah. But then sometimes I'll, I have an A7S as well, mm-hmm. Sony, a little Sony camera that I use as well. Yeah. You're not endorsed by GoPro yet? No. <laughs> I don't, really don't like GoPros, no? actually. No? What's the beef? I just think they just look exactly like a GoPro. Like, yeah. when you when you see a Go, when you see GoPro footage, you're like, that's a GoPro. Uh-huh. And everything's so sharp, everything's in focus. Like, they're great little cameras for what they do. And for, like, action shots and, or, like, underwater shots is great. Yeah. But I've, yeah. It's also a bit touristy walking around with it's, one. Yeah, it's very touristy. And even just how they look, like, I don't know, I just don't like how they look, basically. Do they do much in, because, I mean, I, I watch a lot of, like, um, videos that are sponsored by GoPro. Have you ever come into that sort of world where a sponsor is quite heavily dictating what you're doing or what they want to portray? Kind of. I did a thing for Panasonic GH5. You know, like the GH5 camera? They're kind of like rivaling Sony for the okay. best uh, small video, like DSLR thing right now. And we had to shoot everything on the Panasonic GH5s. And they feel so plasticky and weird. Yeah. And like, and we had to use their specific lenses that they gave us and everything. And to portray exactly what that camera could do. Yeah. Exactly. What were you trying to shoot? We were filming like film tutorial videos. So like kind of how to shoot a documentary yeah. sponsored by Panasonic GH4. Oh, I see, I see. And then we'd interview people who were in the industry, made like documentaries before, and it's kind of like a film school yeah. for people who want to get into filming. Okay. But all shot on Panasonic GH5s. I guess that didn't go very far. Um, it did, I mean, it served the purpose, like it was just like a campaign for them and I think they were happy with it, but like, the videos weren't really shared. That okay. Much, sure. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what you mean. No, it didn't go that far at all. Do you, um, do you feel like your progression into this job, this is a good way to... It is a job. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you feel like the spark for that was? Do you remember, like, when you were younger, like, running around taking pictures quite a lot or, like, trying to portray a story or just being interested in... Um, moving pictures yeah for sure I mean parents got my sister this camera like a Hi8 camera which mm-hmm. had like cassette tapes and shit and she never really used it and I ended up using it way more than she did because I was uh, really into like jackass and oh, stuff yeah. like that <laughs> and so just with friends I think everyone probably mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. a story like this but yeah I used to at school I used to take it to school just film like pranks and just doing stupid shit getting in all trouble. the time yeah. yeah basically and then that evolved into trying to make like skits and little like stories where there'd be like a jackass kind of element but there'd be like a some kind of skit involved as well yeah and yeah, and since then, I mean, my, my family as well, like my uncle from Turkey, he he's a photographer and like video maker and stuff too. Okay. So he taught me how to edit and use like editing software when I was like 16, 17. Right. And so I've always had an interest in... How is 
how has the editing software changed from like when you're doing skits? First of all, can you remember any skits? Because that's obviously mm. what everyone wants to know. Uh, this... And are they on YouTube? No, they're not. But I have I have like DVDs of them like, <laughs> in my drawer. Uh, no, it it wouldn't be that like like one. So my best friend Matthew's like really good at impressions, and so he'd like pretend to be some like Eastern European guy, right? And uh, like talking to cows because like where I grew up, there are a lot of cows, <laughs> and we would like ended up running naked in a field of cows. It was one, it was one of the shots, and like that brings, very artsy. Brings me flashbacks. I've got a picture on a on my camera of a friend of ours who incidentally lives in Brighton. But won't name any names, but he there's just a picture of him running naked in a field being chased by cows. Yeah. And I feel like everyone has done that at some yeah. point, being chased by wild animals. Yeah. I, the idea was to try and go t- cow tipping. Oh, don't do that. I've done that and it's not good. Yeah, we tried, but it was impossible. Cause to like, push him over or to... Because to, I guess that maybe they just weren't sleeping because we heard like cows sleep standing up, apparently. That's how you can tip them. Yeah. Right? But we got really close, and then when you tried to just tip them, they just like just moved. They're quite hench as well. They're very so they hench. Don't yeah. They're very hench. How did we get here? <laughs> <laughs> um, I was looking on your website because I felt like that was a good part beginning to do my research. And how do you mentally prepare yourself differently from going into like a war zone to filming Lil Bub, the Internet Cat? Yeah. I mean... Both different clientele. Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, well, so filming in a war zone is not a joke. Like, we had to have, I had to have mandatory training, Mm -hmm. like um, hostile environment training. Okay. So it's like, it was this three-day or four-day kind of crash course where they put me up in this, like, mansion in the countryside somewhere, which that's, like, the grounds for this hostile environment training. And so there were people there who ex-military and like you know people who've been in actual war zones mm. kind of training press people to okay. what to do and what not to do right and so a lot of it is like they'll show you these these videos of like people getting shot and what happened and how they bled out and how to prevent someone from bleeding out with like a tourniquet or like yeah. how to react in those kind of it's basically like a health and safety training but for war zones okay and so there was quite also, ironic really yeah, yeah, it is a bit. But they would also stage like kidnappings and stuff. Oh so you'd be driving, you'd be driving in this car, and then they were pretending to be like Taliban or like some, yeah. you know uh, militia, and they'd like come at you with like massive guns and just basically it's role play, one hundred percent role play. But they were being super aggressive, you know, yeah. like. Um, so you know, knocking on the window, you'd have to roll down the car car window, and they're like just speaking like really aggressively, like shoot, give me your passport, give me your papers, and basically you have to then figure out how to not escalate the situation, but also not be one hundred percent submissive to the situation. Right, so it's okay. like little things like uh, if someone if you're going through a military checkpoint and someone tells you to roll the window down and they've got like loads of guns and they look dangerous don't roll your window down 100% like kind of roll it halfway so, so they can talk to you so you, you can still talk but they can't like grab like running okay. you know it's harder for yeah. them to like grab shit from the car or whatever was there any sort of like um, legalities that you had to like, what sort of paperwork did you have to get? Because I've heard stories of people that I know who are photo- like photographers, not videographers, 
going to places like Syria and sort of getting botched documents to get through on yeah. the bare minimum and then sort of just hoping that they don't get caught. Yeah, yeah, I mean, a lot of it is like that because bureaucratically to get all the relative documents, uh, the relevant, relevant documents is like, is a nightmare because especially if you're dealing, so we were in Eastern Ukraine, which was occupied by pro-Russian forces mm-hmm. who weren't technically not Russia, but mm-hmm. it was Russia, it was Russian soldiers just without badges, yeah. you know? Okay. Um, but there's no like, there's no real governing body. So like to get the official papers is like almost impossible. Like Yeah, who do you talk to? Do you yeah, talk to and Ukrainian people, Russian people? Yeah, you have to talk to both both sides. And so really like the only thing you can get is these temporary documents that aren't, that maybe one side doesn't recognize as official, but one side does, you know, right. it's not like... So even if you've got official documents, you might just not even get through. Yeah, yeah. Which so, in terms of like doing your work, I guess can be a bit of a pain. Yeah, yeah. How does how does one get to the point where you're? Because um, you went and did a, a video about nightclubs, yeah, which is also hilarious. I think everyone should watch it. But you're getting. How do you get to the position where your employer is going? This is what we want to. This is the idea that we want to film. To actually getting to it, because you've got to go through that training. You've got to find the loopholes, and then all of a sudden you're there. Yeah. What, what is the process from like? to finish start to finish then well we had to leave a lot of time for, to allow for any mishaps so yeah. like we for that film we were out in so in the war zone in Donetsk for like two weeks yeah but we only shot for like the last five days we were there because the oh, right, first okay. the first week was trying to secure access with the okay. people on the ground like people that you couldn't really 100% confirm access with when you're in an, a, an office in London. You yeah. Know? So, so yeah, a lot of it is kind of working, like once, like making sure you can get to that place mm-hmm. and allowing enough time and making sure you have the relevant documents, the, relative, the relevant crew, like we have bodyguards and stuff and bulletproof vests. Mad, isn't it? Because there's the scene where the, um, the guy who's sort of the host of it brings out that uh, black duffel bag yeah. and just pulls out like a helmet, yeah. stab-proof vest, yeah. like... Yeah. Yeah. All of that stuff you have to arrange for beforehand. You know, you have to, as a health and safety thing, as for us, for me not to uh, be able to sue Vice, for Mm. example, like they, for them to cover themselves, Mm. they have to provide us with all that. And rightly so. I mean, like, yeah. Because I guess you're a freelance, you're not employed by Vice. Yeah, yeah. So do you need to sign like any sort of NDs or like any sort of. Like, do they offer life insurance for these sort of things? Mm. I don't. I don't. <laughs> I think they should, but I don't think they did. I think okay. I signed like a contract. I signed a contract for it, saying that you know I'm working for them yeah. during that time for in this hostile environment. But I don't think. Yeah, there's no life insurance. That's crazy. Were yeah. you ever? Was there anything that didn't make it into the final cut that was that like genuinely had you? thinking shit why am I doing this why am I because um, at the end of the day it's the like I feel the same sometimes when I'm watching these sort of documentaries like it's the story that's interesting and people have to go and do it but I can also understand that people are probably sitting there on the ground doing it going kind of wish I was filming you know someone opening a can of beans behind yeah. right now yeah for sure um, I mean yeah there were moments where 
like for example in this in this case Donetsk was on shot like shutdown so there was a curfew and after 10 p.m. if you were outside past the curfew you'd get arrested and you'd spend like the night definitely the night in jail and god knows like how you'd have to I think you just have to bribe yeah. bribe the people so to, much to let you out so actually like part of that shoot was like we had thousands of dollars in cash like <laughs> just for bribes <laughs> sake okay <laughs> just in case like you got kidnapped and you had to give someone like ten thousand dollars fuck yeah or even like I guess at a checkpoint yeah you might just say no totally and yeah just... and then you just slip them like a couple hundred or whatever jeez yeah. luckily we didn't actually get into any Luckily, we actually made connections with a high-ranking police official who was up for talking to us. Yeah. So... Is that the guy that dances? Uh, yeah. He's No, he's not the guy that dances. He's one of the guys from that scene, though. He's, okay. like, one of the guys, like, just getting drunk and, like, yeah, yeah. like he's, like, a, a boss man. Um, but, yeah, luckily, because we made that connection, we were allowed to shoot at nighttime. Okay. And, actually, no, there was one moment where... I think it features in the film, but it wasn't properly captured because we were driving back from this like beach town and uh, all of a sudden our fixer, who's like the local journalist there, tells us that we had to pull over mm. because he saw like a convoy of military trucks, like Russian trucks yeah. passing by. So we basically pulled over in this like woodland road and turned the lights off and everything. In the, in, at night? At, at night, it was like midnight or something. And there was this convoy of massive trucks rolling by that had like uh, grenade, like missile launchers, like proper, like, you know, like huge, yeah. like anti aircraft yeah. missile launchers. Mm. And so we were like, fuck, fuck. And so I was trying to film out the window, and like the producer was like, dude, don't, don't, just don't film. Like, yeah, yeah. if they see us, we're fucked. Like, but I still managed to get like a couple shots. But yeah, those kind of moments are, you're, you're kind of like, fuck, if someone does find us, we're literally like, in a war zone and those are like Russian troops with yeah. like heavy artillery shit do you ever find yourself like feeling sort of um, like removed from it I've got a friend who does uh, he's a videographer and sometimes he says that when he's filming things he doesn't like think that he's filming it it's sort of like he's removed from it and yeah. he's watching it yeah, does yeah. that, that I, definitely, I don't really know what that would be called but I feel it's like a way of coping with the fucked up nature of where you are but without having to physically be there because you're hiding behind the lens of the camera kind right. of thing like that definitely happens like I filmed a documentary about like illegal backstreet abortions in the Philippines oh and God. That, and that was it's intense that was probably one of the things that was harder the hardest to film because we were just in this like slum and there was this girl so basically in the Philippines it's a heavily Catholic country, mm. um, more Catholic than anywhere in the world other than the Vatican, like mm. hugely, hugely Catholic. And so abortion is illegal. You get prison sentences if you're found having an abortion or like helping someone getting an abortion. Jeez. There's no sexual education and there's a, so much poverty. So like kids who live in slums have no access to any sexual education or condoms. Yeah. So obviously they're getting pregnant at like 12, 13. Yeah. And so there's obviously going to be loads of abortions. Yeah. And because abortions are illegal, they have to go through all these like, um, yeah, backstreet illegal doctors. Yeah. And so we filmed one of these with the, a doctor who she calls herself like a witch doctor. And it was like kind right. of 
anyway, yeah, we had, had to film this abortion. Uh, this girl, like, basically, the the doctor gave her this like pill which would dislodge the fetus, and like then she like gave her a massage, which was basically her like pressing so hard on her womb. Yeah. Um, and then like eventually like kind of dug it out of her oh my god and uh, I wasn't I wasn't like fully fully in like getting the gruesome details but I was still in the room yeah filming this girl and trying to make it kind of look good yeah when there's fucked up things happening and so there is like there is that element like I did kind of feel like I wasn't in the room because I was focusing so much on like other lighting. things like lighting <laughs> yeah Ooh, that's so fucked good? up isn't yeah it? or like oh wow that reaction's good let me film that reaction just get a close up if yeah. possible yeah can exactly. we do that again that, <laughs> yeah. can we sorry I missed that uh, <laughs> oh, can you no. do that again yeah it's gruesome but I feel like sometimes you have to laugh at those things otherwise oh yeah you'll definitely, feel, definitely you'll go back to your hotel and cry all night definitely that's but um but that like compared to people like I've never been into like filmed like an actual war yeah I've got friends who've done that and uh, some stories are insane, man. Like insane, like proper PTSD. Yeah, I was gonna, shit. I was gonna ask where you, where you'd been, and like if your sort of top five places and things that you've been and shot that will stick with you for your life. Yeah. So I'd say one is definitely the abortion story. That was like pretty gruesome. Mm-hmm. Um, filming migrants crossing from North Africa into Europe as well. Like we did a whole series about migrant routes mm-hmm. and some of the shit was just horrible, man. Like in Morocco, the way they get to Spain is they, there's like a Spanish territory on the North African coast, like in Mor- it's in Morocco, but it's technically Spain. It's like Gibraltar. Like Gibraltar, yeah. but it's like thousands of miles away. It's in Morocco, yeah. just on the coast. And there's like these massive fences, like three huge, like five meter fences or something that have like razor wire all, all on them. Yeah. And how, and there's, so they're on this mountain, there's this mountain in Morocco that overlooks this town and there's like a migrant camp there. So they all camp out there and then eventually they decide like on a day and thousands of them swarm this fence mm. to just like climbing it. Yeah, and like thousands just overrun of it by sheer numbers. Overrun it by by sheer numbers, exactly. And so some of them make it over, um, all cut up, everything by the razor wire, and uh, some of them don't. The ones who don't, they get beaten by the Moroccan authorities, yeah. put in a van, sent to the Algerian border, and like dropped off in the desert somewhere in Algeria. And then they got to make the. And then they, they make they just make their way back. Jeez. And uh, it was more like the, because um, we filmed a scene in the hospital after one of these, you know, storms as it had happened, mm. and it was horrible, man. There was yeah. like people dying like on the floor and like. So with a story like that, you, I guess you get commissioned to be the visual director or the, the um, what would be your role in? It would be like DOP, so okay, director of photography. Yeah, director of photography. And you would work in conjunction with someone who's going to be presenting the story. Yeah. Do you, like, collaborate on what, like, the, the main points that you want to get across? Or how does, like, the story the storyboarding, as you will, would, how would that come into effect? Well, generally, there's a host. Um, 
who we're filming the story through their eyes. That okay. makes sense. And, uh, and their reactions. And their yeah. reactions and how they live the story. So they'll, um, sometimes for that film in particular, the host was also a producer. So she knew exactly, she knew what we wanted to get out of the story. And I will collaborate with her in, in terms of how we can make a scene work visually. Okay. And if it's, you know, and what we can do to kind of make it dynamic and make yeah. it, you know, make it engaging. Uh, but generally, the really important thing when shooting abroad is having a local fixer yeah. who is like a local journalist, basically, who has connections with um, sort of expert voices, whether that's in the government or with the police force or like, you know, migrant camp, mm -hmm. people that run migrant camps or, or even migrants themselves, you know. Yeah. Um, so working with a local producer is like really really paramount to it yeah, yeah 100% because you're getting the access that you wouldn't you couldn't get just on your own yeah you know? so I guess you never you never just rock up and just ask people there's, all, there's always pre-planned yeah you know when you're talking to people do you feel like you how do you sort of stop a like a bias coming into it like, so I guess most of these things you have to remain neutral. Like you're yeah. trying to see from both sides of it. Definitely. Have you ever been in positions where that has been swayed or someone has tried to sway it for you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that happens a lot. I mean, especially, again, going back to like things like the migrant crisis, obviously you have your own opinions on things and generally the, the publications I work for are a lot more like left-leaning liberal. Yeah. So it's hard not to have that kind of left leftist bias about yeah. it. But for that, I think it's really important to just have voices in your film that are pro and against yeah. and have like, you know, conflicting arguments, mm -hmm. um, having those voices in as much as possible so it creates a kind of debate mm -hmm. as opposed to us being like, you know. No, this is bad. This is, yeah. Credits. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Look how fucked up this is. Like, vote, you know, Labour or something. Vote liberal people. Vote liberal people, yeah. <laughs> so you've got the, um, the Philippines, the um, Ukraine, this migrant crisis. What are the other two that you feel? Um, those are, like, the hardest ones I've shot. Like, the migrant crisis one was, like, several episodes, and it was in different locations, so it really felt... It was like a series we were filming. So okay, sure. I saw that aspect from you know, Morocco to Spain, from Turkey to Greece, uh, in, in Italy as well. Mm. And um, yeah, that, that story really sticks with me just because of the sheer amount of people who were displaced and the sheer amount of suffering mm. that, you, that I saw in such a condensed period of time. And how it only seems to be continuing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and it's just, just never ending. Um, I think those were the... Oh, no, okay, so then there was filming uh, in Bangkok like four years ago or something. There was like an attempted coup. Right. And it was like two weeks of having to wear bulletproof vet, like like bulletproof gear. In Southeast Asian in heat. In Southeast Asian heat. <laughs> um, no, the, all the streets were on lockdown, so the only way we could get from one place to the other was via taxi mopeds. Sick. So like you have to jump on the back of this yeah, like yeah. moped with like your camera and like take me to this uh, to this fruit. process. Sick. Yeah, and like the and we were basically like following Twitter or whatever, seeing um, when the next eruption of, of violence would be, and we were like take me to this place and like going straight into wow. the action and trying to like get the you know the tension and the yeah. Do you watch yeah. the news? Like there's obviously some things going on in the news right now that you wish 
you could get up and just go and do? Do you have that sort of inclination, or do you would do you prefer to wait for the the work to come in, like the steady stream of income almost? <laughs> like, or do you want to just be like, right, I'm going to book a flight to you know insert small yeah. territory off yeah, bigger yeah. country? <laughs> no, no, I definitely I definitely wait for the work to come. Like, I wouldn't just like grab my camera and just go film something. I don't okay. think like. Um, yeah, yeah. Def- I mean, I def- I follow the news, and I definitely feel really passionately about like everything that's going on in the world. But mm. I wouldn't just like I work so much anyway that like, yeah, of course. I can't I, I can't really just do that. Yeah, that's a shame. Yeah. Um, so I mean, how was filming Little Bub? That was that was yeah, that was great. I feel like that was probably the uh, without you know putting words into your mouth from the work that you've done and that's on your website. Probably the most starstruck yeah. I could imagine you would have been. Yeah. It was it was insane. Like uh, I had no idea about this cat when we first started working on it, and then first of all, RIP. Yeah, no, Lobo's still alive. He's still alive. Still alive. That's right. Died. Still alive. Oh no. well. So fact check me at, then. At the end of the film, we kind of make it seem like the cat's going to die because at the time, you, the doctor gave it like two months to live. I'm never trusting your videos again. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's for dramatic effect. Uh, but that film was great, man. Like we won a um, we won an award at Tribeca Film Festival wow. in New York. I got to go there. Like it was on the red carpet with Lil Bub, sick. and it <laughs> felt like we. I was like, it's entourage, you know. It's, it's insane, man. Like press, like taking pictures, like Bub over here, Bub oh over here. Oh my god! Uh, and got to meet. Well, didn't really properly meet, but Robert De Niro. And through Lil Bub. Through Lil Bub. Through his contacts. Through yeah, pretty much. Well, De Niro, De Niro was like, you know, this did like a meter away from me, and uh, just holding Lil Bub, and got to meet Whoopi Goldberg and Tom Selleck, also on that, on that uh, run. Isn't there a cinematography rule like don't work with kids and don't work with animals? I feel I feel like that's something that someone said once. Because they're hard work. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Was, I don't. I don't follow that rule. Was Bub hard? No, no, Bob was great. How do you direct, like, the cat? How do you tell it what to do? I mean, you, we kind of, you kind of, so the owner needs to be there 100%. All the time. Um, which actually, Mike, the owner of Lil Bub, was a super interesting guy. He's like, uh, he's in a really cool band called Memory Map. I don't know if you know that okay. band. Um, I don't know them. Yeah, he owns a really sick studio in uh, Indiana, actually. He's like a really great guy. Music and cats. Music and cats, yeah. Seems to always he he used it. to work for Steve Albini. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. So having him there was great because he would just, he knew exactly how to handle Bub and like what yeah. to do. And like, we built these like amazing sets. Like uh, we built like this Martian um, landscape mm-hmm. set. And the story was like Mike's story about Lil Bub is like, Bub was sent here from out, outer space and is like this creature who has like mystical powers from beyond the universe, you know? Okay. And, uh, and so we built these sets to like, to depict visually what his theories were about where this cat came from and like how special <laughs> the cat was. And so we made like this like spaceship which you put Bub, like Bub in and her head was just like popping out and like... How big is Bub? Like... Remember it's an audio. Yeah, kind of like the size of a tiger loaf of bread. Okay, so not like slightly below average for a cat. Below average for a cat, yeah, below average for a cat. But her, she's also smaller because she has like dwarfism and her bones are like growing in turn and like 
inside, inwards. Oh, inward. okay. And, uh, so now she's just permanently retired? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much. Pouring out for the retired cat. But she's still, you know, she's still very active on Instagram and has a lot of really cool merch. You get Actually, paid to plug? Yeah, well, <laughs> I got loads of free merch, so I, I feel like, yeah, maybe that's my payment. <laughs> I um, feel like you need to ship it on. Yeah. If anyone needs any Lil Bub merch, come yeah. to you. <laughs> yeah, but there's, there's actually a funny link, like, um, so Lil Bub's merch was sold by, uh, was handled by Secretly Canadian. Really? Yeah. Okay. And, and um, so... Oh, there's got to be an album in there somewhere. Oh, there is an album. Incredible. There is an album. Incredible stuff. There is a Lil Bub album. And uh, and anyway, the Secretly Canadian guys were saying that Bub sells more merch than Bon Iver. Jesus Christ. So there you go. It doesn't surprise me, to be honest, with like the way uh, social media and the internet is rising, that people, you know, who, like, um, animals will sell more merch. And there's probably, like, you know, like a version of Comic-Con where people go and watch these animals or meet them. Yeah. I don't know, maybe I'm getting too old for this stuff. I don't know. Um, on the complete opposite end of that, um, what was it like working with someone who fought in World War Two? Oh, um, that was cool, man. That was really cool. It was like one of the easiest shoots probably because, you know, it's all contained within this guy's house. Yeah. Um, but it was pretty insane to be in the presence of this... I think he was like 94 or 95. Yeah. This guy who was fighting for the Nazis, essentially, mm. and just hearing, you know, what it was like for him um, being, you know, captured by the American army yeah. on D-Day, sent to, like, work camps and things like that. Like, hearing the perspective from... I mean, he wasn't a Nazi, but he was fighting for the Nazis. Hearing so. this perspective from the other side that yeah. you're not taught at school. Exactly. Right. Okay. Yeah, that was super interesting. What was the what was the angle of the the like what was the brief and the angle of the story that you were trying to depict? So that story was uh, it was like happening in in parallel with another interview that was shot by a U.S. crew in America from the perspective of a U.S. soldier yeah. on that day. So we were shooting the, the German side and, and there was another crew shooting the American side and they basically paired them off uh, as a, you know, as an account recollection of events. Yeah, on the same both, day. On the same day, wow. yeah, from both sides. Is there, I feel like I've watched one recently where they do that with a, a British guy and a, and, a, and a German guy and they meet at some point. Oh, yeah. Don't know if that's the same video yeah, maybe. I'm thinking of. No, it's a, diff- it's a different one, but yeah. But it's very cool that you... It's almost like a an unexpected privilege to be sitting there and almost being. I mean, there, there, you must have been able to hear like a pin drop in yeah. the in the set, just like yeah. knowing that this whole generation of people that have arguably fought like one of the you know the greatest wars of ever in the history of humanity is going to not be here in like twenty years, yeah. max fifteen yeah. years, maybe. Yeah, maybe less even. Maybe, but um, yeah, that was. That was also quite difficult because, like, you kind of didn't want to interrupt him yeah. in his flow. But obviously, because he's old and he kind of he loses, he gets sidetracked a lot. He um, he'll often go off on tangents, and so you kind of feel bad, kind of being like, "Sorry, can you just stop speaking? Uh, <laughs> like, can we just get back to that original topic? And can you elaborate on that?" Like, oh. you, you kind of felt like <laughs> oh, no. you kind of really had to uh, to 
to wait for the right moment and to kind of say the right words because everything he was saying was incredibly interesting but yeah. also having in mind um, you know the film we're trying to make and like the story we're trying to again like the amount of time you've got to film yeah. with him like how long the piece is going to be yeah. or you know is this is what he's saying right now going to be engaging for someone to watch as well you know you, you have to get make sure that he says everything clearly for the editor then to then be able to make a clear yeah. story do you have much sway in the editing? Do you do a lot of editing yourself in these or just solely um, on, capturing? I do do a lot of editing, but recently I've been doing mainly just, uh, just yeah, cinematography stuff, really, okay. just like just filming. Um, just because the edit, it's... I love editing, but it's so time-consuming. Mm. And I prefer to be... I, I think it's just more flexible for me to just uh, to direct shoots and to just be out okay. on the ground. If there's something, if there's a project that comes along that I that I love and that I I'm involved in really from start to finish, mm -hmm. like I, I definitely would like. I feel like to. you've got an emotional attachment. To yeah, that. for sure. Do you feel that kind of correlates into like some of the like uh, more music-based aspects that you've done? Um, what do you mean, like for like music videos? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, that's so music-based stuff is gen generally I'll always have the start to finish product yeah. and um, like everything I do for the band I always uh, you know your vision I, it's, it's my vision and, and of course I'll have to edit it because like no one else can really I can't really delegate sure. that to anyone else yeah. I feel too precious about it you know mm -hmm. do you find that delegation I, I, I've spoke to quite a lot I, well I spoke to and I know quite a lot of creative people in this sort of world mm. like photographers videographers and stuff like that and sometimes one of the hardest things is like relinquishing a bit of that creative control and being like I need someone else to edit this like do you ever get to the point where you struggle with that or have you ever struggled with that yeah 100% man I mean so a good example is when we toured Japan we brought uh, my good friend Neil out to film stuff for us and we were going to make this documentary and it was going to be this big thing like the you know like very comprehensive idea of like a band going to the first to Japan for the first time and like all the excitement and you know uh, all of that and in the end it just never came out like nothing happened oh, with it so he came with you so he came he came with us um, he shot um, a couple of the sessions that we did out there okay actually. yeah um, yeah he came with us I filmed interviews with every single member of the band before going out um, he was supposed to film an interview with me which never happened and then in the end we just got busy like just busy with life stuff yeah. and just wasn't able to ever, you know, put it out. And I, I think, in retrospect, had I given it to him or to someone else to be like, look, I've, I've had enough of this. Uh, I've been in so closely involved with it. Can you just do the first rough cut or, like, yeah. pull out whatever you think is interesting? Um, I think that would have been the way to approach it. And actually, you know, there's still time to do that. I think... I don't think... I think something will come out of that. I'm sure there'll actually. be some fantastic B-roll in there. Oh, yes. To do something with. Yeah, there's incredible B-roll. I feel like almost sometimes you have to step away from that process a little bit. Yeah, for sure. To get... But, to sort of uncloud your vision a little bit. 100%. It? For things like documentaries, 100%, you need to do that because you're so involved in your own story and trying to live, like, the part of being in a band... Um, and live that to the fullest. But at the same time, I, what I found really difficult in Japan was not being able to balance my vision for this film I'm trying to make, but also 
having fun and being in Japan for the first time. Exactly. And yeah. playing shows. Yeah. And actually that created, like, we had a, a couple of arguments. Um, well, like, there was one day where I was just feeling really on edge because I... I was just focusing too much on what we were trying, like on filming stuff, and mm-hmm. like I was too distant, distant from actually being there and having fun with my friends. Mm-hmm. And from that moment on, I, I told Neil, I was like, look, I'm not gonna just film whatever you want to film. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna, ha- I don't want to direct anything anymore. I, I want to like be involved in this tour for the band, and not, and you just capture whatever you, yeah. you want to capture. And then, and from then on, it was it was cool. Yeah, that's good. At least yeah. you got. At least, you, at least you're not like living in regrets of being like, oh, I missed all of that. Yeah, because exactly that would, that would suck and it would ruin. And it time. was going that direction. And luckily, I noticed like at the very beginning, like we, we spent three days out there before our first show, and it was on the, like, the second day. And well, luckily, very quickly, that, luckily that happened on the second day. Had you been to Japan previously before that? No, oh, so the, even at that point, then you're just yeah. trying to have, focus on having a nice time yeah. rather than filming exactly. people that you see day in day out. Exactly. Yeah. Can you just walk across the road again quickly. Yeah, li- <laughs> there was literally a scene like that. Oh no! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's kind of what sparked the argument. <laughs> I guess like a um, a good question to round this up on would be: Is there anything that you haven't had? Um, the opportunity to do yet in your cinematography field that you would want to do in the future or, or a goal or aspiration that you feel that is achievable yeah I think um, I'd really love to do more music videos because I yeah I just I really love the process of music videos and it's a lot even though it's quite demanding in terms of creative mm-hmm. like coming up with an idea making sure it's you know, it's different and unique and uh, has a specific look. Like, it's way less taxing than, you know, filming a, a news story, you know, with loads of other contributors in it. Mm. It's um, And I think visually, it's really satisfying kind of having the time to, to you know, put think of where your camera wants to be beforehand mm-hmm. and, you know, creating spending time with composition and colour and like right, costume location hunting, and location hunting. Yeah, yeah. that's cool yeah just really focusing on, on those aspects and so I think I'd, I'd like to get involved in more kind of fictional things because of that you know mm-hmm. things where whether it's like short film eventually feature film I'd love to I'd love to direct a feature film that'd be cool you know but before that um, I definitely want to do more you know production music video and like maybe short film production things that involve sets and lighting and like location and like properly and storyboarding as well yeah. I think that's that's really steadily building and growing to basically becoming Steven Spielberg pretty much no I'd rather say uh, uh, not Steven Spielberg Stanley Kubrick sick yeah that's a good place to end it yeah <laughs> <laughs> nice thanks so much all right, all right, there we have it. That's my fun chat with our pal Dev. Hopefully you're all excited for the Little Bub album. You can probably pre-order that on bsmrocks.com at some point in the future. Just before we see this episode out, we've got a bit of housekeeping to keep you updated on. We've got a few more episodes left of this season and we've been working pretty hard on a new series that you'll hopefully be hearing by the end of the year. It's uh, a longer form podcast if you can stomach that kind of stuff. If not, don't worry about it. After the show is hosted by me, Connor Laws, and edited by my good friend and gent guitar expert, Oscar Lydiard, 
Share this with a friend, nominate us for an award of some sort, and if you feel nice, give us a review. Just keep it pretty strictly 1920s American songbook jazz. Cut.